Yes. Well, the subject I have to talk about today is a scary subject. Subject that I wondered, how will it be received? Modesty in the heart. And in some of my worries and frettings last night and then this morning about how it might be received, God gave me clarity as I was praying about it. And one of the things that he told me is that the message that you speak this morning, Clinton, will be received by those of an humble and a contrite heart, those that are seeking after God. So this morning, before we begin, let's pray together. Lord, we we come to you, Lord, with humble hearts, seeking after you. We come to you wanting to know what your word has to say about modesty in the heart. That spirit of humility reaching out into our lives, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, I pray that the devil would have no place here this morning. Opinion would have no place here this morning. But your word would speak, your spirit would convict, and we would go forth from here with clear hearts and clear minds to walk humbly before a holy God. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You probably knew I was going to go here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I will read these verses. Hopefully you have them in front of you. I'll be referring to this verse quite a bit. And right away, I want to just say this is not just for the women here today. And I intend to make that quite real. Let's read this together. In like manner also. In like manner, he's been speaking to the men. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. A couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, we had a, we went to a Wednesday night meeting together as a church and, and we had a plan. We were going to listen to uh, Gary Miller on a, on a little program we had on a CD. Gary Miller was going to speak to us on CD on Kingdom Focused Finances and we put the CD in and everything looked like it was going to work and we had, we had a failure. We had, uh, Technical difficulties and nothing worked. And I realized pretty soon that it just wasn't going to get better. The problem wasn't going to get resolved. So I knew that this topic was coming up. And so I read this scripture, jumped up there in the front, read this scripture, and I asked the congregation to help me study for the message I'm about to speak. And uh, it was good. We had a lot of good discussion. It just, oh, they just, they just like everybody was just waiting on a chance to talk about it. And we had a good discussion about these, the scripture and heart modesty. And uh, partway through the, through our talk, one of the brothers there said, well, you know, we've been talking about, you know, trucks and uh, how we carry ourselves and our, our faces and, and in our hearts and how pride is manifested in lots of different ways. We've been talking about the men and, and uh, how they, they have their own version of immodesty. And, and he said, well, wait a minute. Let's don't forget that this scripture that we've read here is speaking about clothing. After it's all said and done, modesty in the heart, in this context, in these verses, is about clothing. And it's interesting, this verse only actually does, the, the word modesty is only in the Bible uh, once, actually. In, uh, at least in the Greek, except one place, it does speak about bishops being modest, with the Greek word there, and it's translated in that case, good behavior. So if you're going to speak about modesty and you're going to use the scripture, you're going to come to this particular set of verses. 
So I thought that was a good reminder. I think if I understood his heart, he was saying, hey, churches all the time, when they get to the point they've laid aside modest dress, they've laid aside simplicity of dress, they begin to emphasize all the other aspects of modesty and forget that this is the one verse in the Bible where good works and dress are coupled together very closely. I thought that was good for him to remind us of that. In 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, 2 and 3, I'm going to read several verses throughout this message. Don't need to turn to it. I will also be referring back to this scriptures. You might just leave it open in your lap and, and be ready to look at that. But in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 through 3, it says this. Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Ye are our epistles written in our hearts and read, known and read of all men. For as much as you're declared, manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ. Paul says you are epistles in our hearts and you're also epistles of Christ. You are billboards for Christ is basically what that's saying. You are allowed proclamation for Christ. You are showing Christ and you're known and read of all men. So the question here before us this morning, as people read us, as they see our billboards, what are they reading? What do they see? Does it say Christ? The Christian wardrobe is no small matter. The daily statements we make with our clothing, intentionally or unintentionally, Interpreted correctly or incorrectly. Whether you intend it or whether you don't. No matter who's reading it and no matter what interpretation they're making. Are among the boldest and clearest nonverbal statements that we make. You got that. Interpreted correctly or incorrectly. Intentional or unintentional. You are making a statement with the clothing that you wear. Our neighbors... Siblings, co-workers, classmates, and fellow church members cannot help but see our clothing. Everyone notices whether we're sloppy or neat, simple or extravagant, provocative or modest. Clothing affects our self-image. Ask anybody who gives people uh, you know, advice on how to be a good salesman or how to project themselves in a in a business boardroom. Our, our attitude about ourselves is affected by the clothing we wear. That's a fact. That's true. That is something you will find in any advice uh, counseling place where they're telling you how to be a businessman or a salesman or a politician. It actually affects the way you think about yourself and it certainly has a giant impact on how people view you. Our worldview, what we believe about ourselves what we believe about God, what we believe about our relationship to one another, what we believe about our, what we are projecting before who, who dwells in us, everything about the idea, the perception of ourself is called worldview. And that worldview, who you think you are before God and before your brothers and sisters and before the world and in the world, your purpose and your place on the planet is reflected in your clothing. You first have a worldview and then you wear it. We wear what we believe. In 1 Peter 5 5, it says this. It's a, quite a scripture about humility. And it ends this way Be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. Now, we know he's not saying wear humble clothing. But what I believe he's saying is something like this. In Philippians 4, 5, it says, let your moderation be known of all men. Let your moderation, that means gentleness. Is used, that's the defining characteristic by which you should be known. When people think of Christianity, when they think of you, dear brothers and sisters, they should be thinking, those are gentle people. That should be your defining characteristic. It's not that we don't say, hey, I'm moderate, I'm gentle, 
I'm modest. That's not what you're saying. You're wanting people to think of Christianity. You know, we, we have our own perceptions of Muslims, don't we? And a lot of it has to do with the newspapers. We have this impression that they're violent. We want our projection, what people think of us, to be known as moderate, gentle, and we also want to be known as humble people. That which is in the heart manifesting itself on the outside. Be clothed. Yes, 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 in the heart. Humility in the heart. Humility deep inside of ourselves, knowing that we serve a powerful and a great God and that we are nothing before Him. We esteem others better than ourselves. We love our neighbors as ourselves and it comes deep from within the heart, but it's also clothed on our outside. Our demeanor, the way we carry ourselves, the clothing we wear and the cars we drive, the trucks we drive, everything about our demeanor should say to the world, I follow the humble, meek Jesus. Well, I told you I was a little afraid to speak this message. And one of the obvious reasons is that some people are just sick and tired of it. And they really don't believe that modesty, especially modest dress, should be talked about a whole lot. Can't we just speak a lot more about mission work? Can't we speak more about heart, heart purity? Can't we speak more about devotions to God? Can't we speak more about the cross of Jesus Christ? Why do we need to speak about modesty? Modesty in dress. Can't we just speak about inner holiness? One of the things that happens when you begin to talk about dress, and I just want to say right here, that's not one of my pet subjects. It was assigned to me. I believe in it. Something I believe in very very strongly. But in my home, if you would ask my children, we hardly ever discuss clothing in our home. I've never preached about it in our church. And except for the, the one conversation there on a Wednesday night just very recently, I don't believe we've ever really talked about it to a great degree. It's not, we're not legalistic. And we shouldn't be legalistic. All of you have heard of Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary in Burma. It would be, uh, what is that now? Myanmar now, is that what they call it? He was... Missionary to the Karens people. The Karens people were known as the women carried their wealth upon their persons. They wore earrings and necklaces and armbands and ankle bracelets and nose rings and earrings. They were highly ornamented people. And Adoniram Judgment was very, very much struggled with that. It was not right. There's something inherently wrong about it. He resolved that he would no longer baptize a woman who wore all this stuff. And it's a little unclear whether it was the first baptism of a woman or not. I, I read the account. But he, a woman was before him. She desired baptism. And because of his teaching, she was down to one necklace. It was all that was left of all that Karen's culture that she was a part of. And he asked her to remove the necklace and cease to wear it. And he couldn't baptize her if she didn't. And it's a beautiful story. She looked down her necklace and she took it off. And she said, I love Jesus more than this. She laid it aside. A beautiful story. A wonderful story. He wrote a letter soon after, and I'll tell you why. That, he says in his letter, the thing happened that I had been dreading. Some of the men from the Karen's tribe went down river, and they met a missionary lady from Europe, and she was wearing a necklace. And they came back, these men came back, and they challenged Adoniram. Why? You said that Christians don't do this thing. So he wrote a letter, he wrote a long letter, and he made it an open letter to this woman. 
And I have part of that letter with me, and I want to read it. I want you to think about it. Adoniram Jubson speaking in an open letter to a woman who wore a necklace in an area where he realized they were going to have to get more biblical in the matter of dress. And this is his quote. Be not deterred by the suggestion that in such discussions you are concerned about small things. This is a very long letter, by the way. I'm reading a very small portion of it. Great things, he says, depend on small. And in that case, things which appear small to short-sighted men are great in the sight of God. Many there are who praise the principle of self-denial in general and condemn it in all its particular applications as too minute, scrupulous, and severe. The enemy is well aware of it. If he can secure the minute units, the sum total will be his own. Beware, he goes on to say, of another suggestion made by weak and erring souls who will tell you that there is more danger of being proud of plain dress and other modes of self-denial than of fashionable tire and self-indulgence. Be not ensnared by this last, most finished, most insidious device of the great enemy. Rather believe that he who enables you to make the sacrifice is able to keep you from being proud of it. So does these small things matter? Adoniram Judson believed that it did. I have just, in case you men are sitting back and thinking it doesn't really matter, does 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 apply to you in any way? Is there a heart condition manifested on the outside that has any part in you brothers, men's life? I have a few verses. I don't need to turn to them. I just want you to listen to them carefully, brothers. I want you to let them sink into your heart. In Philippians 2.15, it says this, and we're going to cover some of these verses again in more detail, but just let God's Word become a part of who you are. Philippians 2.15, that ye may be harmless, blameless and harmless, sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of, listen to this, in the midst of, a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Is the world in its dress crooked and perverse? Anybody want to say yes or no on that one? Yes. We know that the world is crooked and it's perverse. And we walk in that world, do we not? Yes, we do. Are we lights? In a world of perverse and wicked dress, are we lights in that perversion? Are we lights in that wickedness? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Charity suffereth long. We're familiar with the charity chapter. Charity envieth not. We're not looking out there for our clothing patterns. We're not envying the world's clothing pattern. We're not envying that popular person's clothing. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up, doth not behave at some self unseemly, seeketh not her own. Does these verses apply to you, brothers? Are they for you? Does it apply to dress? Yes. God wants these things to reach our heart and manifest themselves in our lives. As we seek the character of Christ, may that character come in and out of us, into us, into our hearts and out of us. And this is a scripture concerning Jesus, our high priest. Hebrews seven twenty six. for such an high priest 
became us. And that's a sermon by itself. He became us. He became who we are. Except that he was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Jesus became us. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate. Not like the sinners. Not like the perverse and the wicked. But separate from the perverse. Separate from the wicked. And yet walking amongst the perverse and the wicked. Holy. Separate from the world. So turn with me back to 1 Timothy. If you haven't turned your Bibles closed. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. I'd like to go through a couple of, of aspects of this verse. Women adorn themselves. Ninth verse. In like manner also that women adorn themselves. Did you hear that? Paul is not saying that women should not adorn themselves. There in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, lay up treasures. Does he not? Does Jesus tell us to lay up treasure? Yes, he does. Does the Apostle Paul tell women to adorn themselves? Yes, he does. The question is, where do you lay up your treasures? And the question is, how do you adorn yourself? How do you go about being a manifestation of beauty for God? How is this done? Modest apparel. Modest simply means orderly, decent, appropriate. What does that mean? You know, we didn't know. You know, appropriate is kind of a relative term. Appropriate to what? The concept of modesty, as I understand that term, primarily, though it says there in in, uh, speaking about bishops, they should be good and godly. Basically, modest in this context is a relative term, but it's defined by the terms that come later. And those terms that come later are shamefacedness, sobriety. It says what it is not there about gold and braided hair and also professing godliness. So we don't know what modesty is. We often talk about what does it mean? Is it relative? What's modest amongst the Karens people in Burma? What's modest in Niger, Africa? What's modest in the Amazon jungle? What's modest in New York City? We talk about these things. Modesty Yes, could be somewhat of a relative term, but modesty in this scripture is being defined. And let's look at that. It is shame-faced. If you look at that word, it's, it's an old English word. It often says fastness, and it has a meaning. It has something that's easy to define. One of the best ways, I think, to define what it is is define what it is not. And many of you are familiar with Proverbs 7, 10 through 13, that, that foolish man who, who a woman came up to him. She was, well, let's read it. And behold, there met him, this foolish man met him, a woman with an attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without. Now in the street lieth in wait at every corner. She caught this man. And kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him. That impudent face. An impudent face is the opposite of a shame face. If you study that word impudent, you find that the word means shameless, wanting modesty. This is Vine's definition. Bold with contempt, saucy. Without shame. So the attire, a woman with the attire of a harlot has an impudent face. And we Christians are told to have, be shame faces. Have the concept of shame. Adam and Eve knew in the presence of a holy God, when they realized that they were sinful, what were they? They were ashamed. 
They had a sense that there's something broken between us and God. Shamefacedness is not, it's not a cowering thing. Well, one of the things that I read in some of the studies I made was that it's a word that, de- that would describe a soldier before his superior. Yes, he's taught to be proud of his country. He's taught that he is a soldier. He's taught to fight. He's taught to be a man. But before his superiors, he doesn't cower. He's not in shame, but he shows deference, reverence to his superiors. And it's a strong sort of reverence. That is the definition of shamefacedness. One of the ways that I would like to describe it, I use the word reserve. You know, one of the things that happens, you know, we don't mind our young people, our boys and our girls, our young people meeting together and talking. The one thing we need to be comfortable with that, because we have a high standard of modesty, we have a high standard of courtship, we have a high standard of what we expect in that interaction between the sexes before marriage. Reserve. Recently, I heard the story of a young, a group of young people who took a bus ride. And I know one of the people involved in this bus ride. It's a true story. Somehow, the, the, the bus ride took long enough that before it was over, some of the young men were hugging the girls. I don't know if it was a high side hug or how that was. And some of the girls were very uncomfortable with that. But one of the girls did notice that there was a girl over there that the boys were never hugging. So she went to that girl. She says, why? How do you get by with that? Why are the guys not hugging you? You're doing something different. And she said, I keep my door closed. That is a definition of shamefacedness. If you want to know, if you want a practical definition of shamefacedness, it is keeping your door closed. If you find that your boys are coming and flocking you and you're uncomfortable, that you ought to be uncomfortable, by the way, and they're treating you disrespectfully, your door is not closed. They're walking right on in. Sobriety. Sobriety, according to Vines, is a habitual self-government. Habitual inner, remember this is heart modesty here. Habitual inner self-government with a constant reign on passion and desire. With sobriety. How is modesty defined? It is defined by the word modest, uh, sobriety. Sobriety is a check. A constant inner check, control of our passions and our desires. Are we letting our passions and desires out in our clothing? Are we letting people know what we're thinking on the inside by our clothing? Yes, you are. What are you showing about your passions and your desires by your clothing? You can't get around the fact that you are making a statement with your clothing. If you think you can get by without making a statement, you're fooling yourself. Sobriety. And then it says what it's not. It's not outward things. And I think it's foolish to focus in on these specific things and turn it into a law. He doesn't make the list. It would be a very long list in our society. It was a long list in their society too. But it's not these kind of things. This is a general statement. Gold and pearls and costly array and broided hair. But it is something else. It's not these things. You want to know what it's not? It's just simply not outward things. But you are to adorn yourself as. But which becometh women professing godliness. Professing godliness. That word professing is a loud proclamation. It's a bold statement. It is. I wrote something down here if I can get my eyes on it. I'm not getting it on here. But basically, it's not just you say it, but it's a loud statement. 
So you wear clothing. You carry yourselves. You wear, buy shoes. You buy trucks. And you carry yourself on the job site. You carry yourself around the opposite sex in a way that is like a woman who professes godliness. Becometh. Which becometh. That is, it complements. It's appropriate too. It walks alongside. It's the concept that says that there's no clash here. Everything is in order. Everything, what is in my heart, the godliness that I have deep inside my being, the godliness that I profess, all comes together in my appearance. I have four principles here. Maybe I better be ask one question of you men. I'll probably cover that a little bit later on. I just want to make the statement. This concept of shamefacedness and sobriety, how you carry yourself, the boldness of your look. You know, there are women who are attracted to the devil may care the bold and the brave, the guy who defies convention. And we can say with our clothing, the way we carry ourselves and the loudness of our voice, we can say, I am bold, I am dashing. You may want to get to know me. And there are women who went after people who ultimately were criminals, drug addicts, and the worst kind of men. Because there was that air of dashiness. The air that, that I'm going to defy convention. There's women who will chase the maverick. And they usually pay a dear price. So I have four principles. And I'm not going to talk about the first one much at all. Deuteronomy tells us in 22.5, it says, Don't wear clothing of the opposite sex. You know, we should not, you know, in this room, I can't see any evidence we're going that way. But that's the where the world is going. You know, here we are in 2018. I would hate to think that 30 years from now that we and our churches are going to be facing that head on. I can't imagine that. But there's a lot of things that's hard to imagine that has happened over the past 30 years. In fact, there's things that's been happening in the past 10 years that has shocked me. I'm not very old. But in the world at large, there is a breakdown. You know, from a distance you can't tell. Is that a man or is that a woman? Sometimes even up close, you wonder. We live in a world that's very breaking down in that area. But we don't think we need to spend much time on that subject. Principle number two. What does it make others think of me? What nonverbal language am I speaking? What do people see when they see me? Does it say the attire of a harlot? What signals am I sending? Does your clothing speak the character of Jesus? Harmless, holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, a light to the world. Does your clothing say in Philippians 2.15, blameless, harmless, sons of God, without rebuke, in a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Harmless. Does your clothing say harmless? Does your clothing say separate? You know, one of the things that I hope we always maintain in our people is dressing our children as ladies and gentlemen. You know, as our children are growing up now, but especially when they were younger, they would often comment, what a little lady about our daughters. And what a little gentleman. They knew that those Mickey Mouse outfits and the sweatpants and the t-shirts and the monogram this and the pink that, just it just made them, there was no respectability. I mean, you see our children, it happened all the time. And you older people can probably testify, it's happened to you too. There's something about the clothing even of a little child that speaks. This child is being raised differently. This child is coming up in a home where there's respectability being taught. 
There's something about that that they admire. Oh no, they don't change their lives. They still raise their children just the way they were going to anyway. Hollywood and, and Mickey Mouse teaches them how to raise their children. And worse yet, sometimes the most corrupt movie stars and singers of our time are teaching them how to dress their little daughters. You see little five-year-olds with midriff revealing shirts and you wonder what in the world the parents are thinking. Let's don't go there. What are we telling? What are we saying with our clothing? You know, we all have testimony, I'm sure, those of us in the plain circles. But I was in a, we were, as a family, was in a church years ago where we dressed very plainly, more than we do now. Very, very traditional in our plainness. And we often took the bus, quite often took the bus. And it wasn't just our family, it was everyone in that community had the same experience. You would be sitting down, waiting on the next bus, and you know, just kind of bored and tired and like you are traveling. And someone would come up, and a lot of times they didn't even ask. Barely give you time to say no. They would say, would you watch my luggage? I need to go to the bathroom. That happened constantly. Our clothing said harmless. They felt like they could trust us. I don't want to get away from that, brothers. Are we saying that with our clothing? Are we saying harmless? Are we saying trustworthy? Are we saying followers of the holy God with the clothing that we wear? This didn't happen just a few times. You know, one time a, a woman was driving down our road and she stopped suddenly and she came to the door and she said, I'm looking for someone I can trust to clean my house and it looks like you would be the one. And all she saw was us in the yard. Do we want to drop that thing? Do we want that to go by the wayside? I do not. I want my clothing to say that I'm holy and harmless, undefiled, trustworthy. Our outward appearance should in no way misrepresent the inner man. If you are a born-again child of God, and He is breaking your heart, He is making you humble, He is making you holy and harmless and clean, and He's making you love your neighbor down deep inside your heart, does your clothing belie that? Does your clothing say that truth? Or does it say, I am one of the crowd? You know, I thought of Anatoly yesterday. He talked about walking in these parades, carrying the signs. You know, there was a lot of things those signs said, I'm sure. It probably had to do with communism and, and the march of progress and all the wonderful things about communism. And I'm sure they wore the, probably wore the red uniforms and all that stuff to march in the parades. But one of the things that those that was unsaid. It wasn't on any of the signs, but it was being said anyway. When you walked in that parade, you were saying, I am one of you. These people are my people. Their direction is my direction. I am in harmony with the people of Ukraine. I am going where the Communist Party is going. And it wasn't saying a word. It was just marching along. What... In the world that we live, we do not live in the Ukraine. We're not being told to march in a parade and carry banners and wear little buttons. But are we saying with our clothing, I am one of the world. I'm one of you guys. I'm just like you. Oh, you might want to come and have a conversation with you. You'll find out I'm a little different down inside my heart. But are we saying with our clothing, I'm no different than the rest of you. Men, I'm going to talk to you a, bit, a little bit more, but that's a problem and becoming a greater problem in our circles. I'm just one of you. Be not afraid to be different, to march to the tune of a different drummer, to obey the call of another world, to obey another king, Jesus, to be a part of a different kingdom. At a time when other people, perverted people, wicked people, twisted people, are coming out of the closet and declaring their perversion, can we not declare outwardly and loudly and visibly that we are sons and daughters of the King Jesus and we are separated unto the Lord? We're separated unto King Jesus. Can we say that every day, all day? Verbally and non-verbally. Can we hear 
a different voice and march and dress to a different tune. Point number three. What kind of people dress that way? Remember, you are choosing. You are choosing. And so you have a choice. What kind of people dress that way? There's a principle. A fashion designer said it this way. No one can be induced to wear a fashion or style if someone they do not wish to be identified with wears that. If you do not want to look like a Muslim for fear that you will be thought of as a terrorist, you will avoid looking like a Muslim, will you not? No one will consciously decide to wear clothing of a people group or a, a fad or, a, or a, a movement of a group of people that they do not wish to be identified with. But the converse is true. Look around you, birds of a feather flock together. People will often begin to dress like the people they identify with, the people they admire, the people they want to be like, the people that they want other people to think they're a part of, whether they have ever ridden a horse or not, whether they've ever roped a calf or not. There's some people go all over town looking like a cowboy. They want to be thought of. As a cowboy. Oh, maybe they don't want anybody to think they really are a cowboy, but they want to be a part of that culture. They want to be thought of in that way. We do dress like we want, we project. That's conscious, but there is unconscious ways in which we do that. So there is a principle that I want to hold before you. It's called the principle of the course of performance. So that's a concept I got from David Berceau. The course of performance principle is a law principle. And it basically says this. How have people done it in the past? Who is doing it? And they make laws based on these things. Who has had this piece of property the longest? That determines who actually ends up with it. The course of performance. So the question I have for you when you look around trying to decide how am I going to dress myself? And churches need to make these decisions too. When you look around, ask yourself, who is going what direction? And you will notice, if you're a noticing kind, you will notice that direction is worn in the clothing. That is just the facts of the matter. You will see, always see that the direction will be reflected in the clothing. You can say clothing are amoral. You can say clothing don't matter, but ultimately you're going to find that's not true when it comes to direction. So the question you need to ask yourself, in a group of people that are going on with God, they are raising up godly families, they are passing their values on to their children, they have sound doctrine, they are people who are serving God. How do they dress? That should inform our thinking are they maintaining family and community? The other thing you would look at is who in your life, you young people, you have friends. And some of you have friends that are insecure. You have friends that are a little boy crazy or a little girl crazy. Maybe a little light-minded. Maybe a little rebellious to your parents. You have other friends who really are at peace. They're just with their parents. They're with the church. They have a heart after God. You know that you go to them and get some good advice. They might not be as much giddy fun to be with, but they're good, solid people you know you can depend on. Ask yourself, how are they dressed? There's a course of performance principle in this. You look around, and this might be more for the ladies. In this room, there's differences. That's just the fact of the matter. And you look around at the differences, and maybe some of you 
You see somebody who's a little more modest, a little more plain, a little more conservative. I ask you, what goes on in your mind? Do you think that's a good example? I want that pattern. That's something I would like to follow. Or do you think frumpy, dowdy, sloppy, old-fashioned, grandma, guy-repellent? If I dress like that, I'll never get married. What would be your reaction if the authorities in your life said, that's the way I want you to dress? Would you yield quietly, humble heart? What are the non-negotiables in your life? We all have non-negotiables, but in the area of dress, what is the non-negotiable thing you will not compromise on? I will not be ugly. I will not be frumpy. I will not be dowdy. I will not be plain. Is that your non-negotiable? Or is the non-negotiable thing that is absolutely without compromise in your life, I will be modest. Modesty without compromise. Modesty without question. That everything will come under that. I will manifest my dear Jesus in my clothing and that is that. What is the non-negotiable in your life? Somebody, I think early on, one of the first days, he spoke about a compass needle. Is your compass needle on due holiness and everything else is out of course? I like that analogy. Number point number four, will it cause others to stumble? The scripture there in Romans 14, 21 It's a scripture speaking about eating meat offered to idols. But it's interesting. In 21, it says this. Listen carefully. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Years ago, I was in a a church setting and around came a paper. In our little world. And the title of the paper was The Sin of Bathsheba. And that paper was an interesting paper. It was kind of a, a it kind of hit our circle with like a bomb in the middle of a, of a hen house. Maybe a fox in the hen house. Maybe I mixed my analogies there. But it really stirred up the waters. And it was written primarily to women. And, of course, you know the story of Bathsheba. Yes, David was wrong. Yes, David was, was, he was the one that received the judgment of God. He was the one that should have been to battle, and he wasn't. But it points out that Bathsheba was bathing on a rooftop. And the question that this paper brought to mind for everyone was, is there such a thing as a sin of Bathsheba? Is there, is men have to carry all the responsibility of averting their eyes and being careful with their hearts. Does women have a place in that? And I think the part that made it a bombshell in our little world was that it got pretty specific. And I recommend some of you sisters read it. It described a lot of men's struggles and what they see in women and sisters. Things that they struggle with and they don't like to admit. I speak with a little trembling right now. I'm speaking... I think for a bunch of men over on this side of the bench, they struggle with things you don't know about. What, what if we cause our brother to stumble? Don't advertise something that's not yours to sell. You are bought with a price, you belong to Jesus. While you're under your parents' authority, you belong to your father and your mother. You are not for sale. Don't advertise with your looks, with your expressions. Don't advertise. Point number five. Is it merely a personal choice? I would made this a statement when I originally made my notes for this. What I'm going to ask is a question. You're going to have a discussion group here soon. 
Is our clothing a matter of personal choice? Maybe just our, maybe our father's heads of home's choice? Is it just strictly conviction? I was speaking to an elder recently, and he said this. Some of the styles I'm seeing, especially in our brothers, is not the styles that I think would happen if spirit-filled men would gather around the Scriptures and begin to discuss how should we then look. The styles that I am seeing on my brothers is not the result of godly men gathering around the Word of God and praying over the Word of God and speaking honestly to one another about what our hairstyle should be and how tight our pants should be and what colors we should wear. It's something else. And he went on to say that it has to be coming from only one place because it's not the way the elders are dressing. It's the way the world is dressing. And I believe that there's something to that. Who decides? Years ago, I was, a, I was in a, an oppor- had an opportunity to be in a church fellowship that not very many years before that, it basically said, we're not going to have any standards. We're not going to have any rules. We're going to throw out all this, all this extra ordnung stuff. And we're going to go by the Spirit of God. And I really enjoyed being there. It was a pleasant, enjoyable time. The memory of that time is one of the high points of my life. Except that we went to the youth group one evening. And this was back in the earlier 2000s. And that was the height of the hip-hop craze. And the baggy pants was a big thing at that time. And the big shoes, you know, the, 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 the rapping culture was big at that time. And the, the hair was kind of hanging down long and curly down into the eyes. And especially the men. And the, the women weren't much better. And so I looked around and I was just kind of horrified. You know, the, the girls are wearing, uh, even the, the church members were wearing uh, clothing that had big, wide printed words right across their chest. Just, you know, that what that does. It just asks you to read that word. It causes you to look somewhere besides the face. And so I knew the, the ministry there pretty well and had a good visit with them. And I, I challenged them a little bit. I asked them to consider what's happening. You're asking your young people not to go by the you know, church standards. You're talking about the Spirit of God. But all of a sudden, they're no longer looking to you, the elders. They're no longer looking to the older sisters and the older brothers in the ministry of the church. They're looking somewhere else, and where they're looking is the rapper culture. I said, the fact is, you can't get away from the fact that they will identify with someone. They will dress like someone. You can't get around that. You can try all you want, but you will look like somebody. And you will tend to look like the people you admire. And of course, in their case, they were listening to the wrong kind of music. They were watching the wrong little videos on their iPhones. And they were dressing like that. Who decides? Who decides? My understanding is that they took it to heart, that conversation. For the best I can tell, they've managed to get a little bit more hold on that problem. Do we have blind spots in our dress? Do we see ourselves as we actually are? Do I see myself as I actually am? Am I the best judge of what image I am portraying to the world around me? Should be left entirely up to me. You young people, at least, at least don't argue with your daddy. And don't just assume that he's being old-fashioned. Don't just assume that your mother just coming from an old-time school and don't really understand the day we live in. Ask yourself, who do you admire? Who are you following? And just the fact that you don't realize what you're doing, you don't want to, you know, if I would ask those young people, I really did feel the Spirit of God there in that meeting in that youth group. If I would have asked them, do you want to be a rapper? You know, that, you know, cop killing, mother hating people, you know, the, you know, that all started in the jails and the inner city gangs. That's where all that music started out. Is that who you are? They was like, no, they, they, I was farthest from the heart. I know it was. I don't have any fear that they somehow thought that they were going to sneak around and really have all this violence in their heart. You know, I think rap music has become more mainstream, but back then it really was pretty much a violent it was, a, it was a music tradition coming out of violence. 
And I was very horrified that these people were actually looking like that culture. Oh, yes, it's dumbed down and tamed down. It wasn't quite the worst, but it was there. The point is that we don't always know, we're not always conscious of that. Now, being unconscious of it, and remember the question is, who decides? You've all heard of typhoid Mary, I'm sure. Way back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a typhoid Mary, she was called. And she was a woman who carried typhoid, but she had never been sick. She was a strong lady. She knew that she had never had typhoid. And behind her would be people dying behind her. She had a problem. She was a poor lady with very few skills except one. She could cook. And typhoid is carried through the food. And so she would work in restaurants and in in rich people's houses and cooking food. And as soon as she, just very soon, people would be sick and it began to become a pattern. And so the authorities caught her and said, hey, wait a minute, you can't do this. And she argued tenaciously, it can't be true. There's no possible way that I am the one causing people to get typhoid. She was persuaded and she made a promise that she wouldn't cook anymore. But she did it anyway as really her only skill. But then she would move quickly. She would be in a place. And as soon as someone would get sick, she'd go to the next town under another name. It took them a while to catch her. And each time they caught her, she would declare that I'm not the one doing it. It's not my fault they're getting sick. I'm, it had nothing to do with her intentions. That's the point. It had nothing to do with her experience. It had nothing to do with her perception of herself. She was a carrier of typhoid and they had to lock her up for over 20 years. She was alone in a place where they, what they call them, sanitariums, I believe, back then, to keep her out of the public. We can sometimes be a carrier. We can be a propagator. We can be a stumbling block to people. I would just like to say that, you know, John Wesley, at the end of his life, he had two regrets. He regretted, after all the movement, he preached traveled thousands of miles, preached thousands of sermons. And great things happened in his life. But at the end of his life, he looked around at the movement that came out of his preaching. And he had two regrets. He wished that he had spent more time and got more specific about the area of money and dress. Because by that time, these poor people that had come alive under his preaching were now rich. And they were starting to show it. I just ask you, who decides? Young men, there's a male version of immodesty. I'm going to have to move way faster than I am here. What do we leave out? There's a male version of immodesty. You know, all of you, could tell us what an immodest woman looks like, and you women too could say the same. But do you know what male immodesty is? Well, it has the same purpose. Down deep in us is a desire to be attractive to the opposite sex. Now, I didn't say that. I said it. But it's not because it's an opinion. That is a matter of fact. Anyone who studied anthropology enough realizes that people want to be attractive to the opposite sex. And we know... And in a modest body is very attractive to a man. But what attracts a woman? It's a different. Yes, immodesty in the body matters. But it's something else. We portray strength, power, wealth, status, influence. We portray, in short, we portray that we would be a good catch. We're going to be a good provider. And we do it with braggadocia and swagger sometimes. That's the, that's the, that's the, the macho way to do it. But there's more subtle ways. And with our vehicles we drive, the loud rumbly trucks, we get attention. We show that we are successful. There's more than one way to be immodest. And for men, that is the way we are immodest. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And we have a much better way a much more spiritual way, a much more biblical and godly way to begin a courtship than to flaunt our strength 
and status by being loud. Men, these women have been asked to dress according to, becoming to, like women professing godliness. I ask you men, are you, when you walk alongside your mother, when you walk alongside your sister, when you look across the room and see that young lady that you might think someday you'll be married to, I ask you, are you in accordance with that? Are you walking in compliment to that? Are you walking in a way and dressing in a way that becometh that? That thing that you ask your, your sisters to dress like and probably will ask your wives to dress like, are you becoming that? Are you showing by where your eyes go and the things you admire, the things you look at and give a second look at? We live in a day of internet pornography. It's a horrible thing and we just will face it. Didn't even used to like to say those words. I still don't, but I have to. We're faced with it. I hate it. Brothers, we are asking our women to be modest. We're saying to some young lady, I want you because you're, you're in a godly, you come from a godly home, you're chaste and you're a virgin and, and it's just, I see all these wonderful attributes over here on this side of the room. But our eyes are going over there. We're showing our young sisters. We're showing them that we have two standards. We're showing them that actually the attraction is to immodesty. We're saying that we actually admire something else and our eyes are turned somewhere else. Where do you think they're going to end up going? We're attracted to one another. We need to be, you young men and young ladies. We need to be as part of God's plan. But how? It's not a matter of is there attraction, but God is saying, what kind of attraction? What is it that attracts you? Is it a modest, simple, shamefaced, quiet young lady? On the surface where you can see it, but out in your heart, your eyes are following the miniskirt as it walks down the street. One of our dear sisters made that point. On that Wednesday night, she's just one of our sweetest, quietest ladies in our church. She never says anything harshly. I've never seen her get upset. And she grieved over that trend of our men being so utterly out of accord with the women. Our insecurities, it's just a basic principle of life, men and women. Men show it differently than girls. But girls, when they feel insecure, will become provocative. And men will begin to flirt. They, will become, they won't allow themselves to be quiet. They have to be the center of attention. They try to get the attention of the girls any way they can. Insecurity dresses and looks in modesty. Proverbs 6.17. God talks about the seven things that he hates, and one of them is a proud heart. Is that right? No, it's a proud look. Six Proverbs six seventeen, God hates a proud look. The only people that I know of in the world that we live in, if you go on the internet and do a little research, which I did, you will find that the only people that say that clothes don't mean anything, clothes have no message, are people who are rebelling against plain churches. The fashion designers know it does. The movie stars know it does. The politicians know it does. Everyone but the plain people know that clothing speaks a language. And it matters what it speaks. And there is a whole, whole world out there studying this thing. We're the only ones. God looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearance. Do you all know where that scripture is? Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. That's almost just as true. And we just say that. That comes out of the Bible there where David is being sought by Samuel. Where is Samuel? These strong, tall brothers. And here's Samuel, or uh, David. God looks at the heart. But I would like you to notice something. 
King Saul was a tall man, just like David's brothers, apparently. Was God just saying, well, David's going to have a right attitude. He's just going to have a good, lot of good God in his heart. Or was God saying, I see his heart. I see a heart that will look after me, a heart that will follow me, a heart that will go my way, a heart that may turn away sometimes, but he will ultimately turn back to me in obedience. The heart that God saw in David was a heart of obedience. A heart that would, yes, sin, but would a broken, a contrite heart. David said, thou will not despise. That God saw in David's heart a heart that would continually turn back to him in obedience. It is Our clothing is not merely a heart thing. Down south, there was a church I read about. That during the days of the miniskirts, and this was a pretty long period there, 60s and 70s, and it got into our churches, by the way, not how much charity hardly even existed in those days. The miniskirts are big. Some of the pastors down there got pretty frustrated and they didn't know what to do. Now, interestingly, almost all the other churches have given up on this subject, except the plain churches were the last ones left, really. They really care about dress when in any sizable way. And some of the small churches are trying, some of the home churches are trying. But in those days, there was still a pretty hard effort in those churches. And so one of the pastors came up with an idea. He took a yardstick and he tacked it to the side of the church door. And the sisters, when they came in, had to walk by and make sure their hem length was long enough. Is that what we have to do? You know, that's kind of a Protestant ordinung, isn't it? I'm calling out for something altogether different. We do not need a yardstick tacked to our church door. We need a change of heart. We need an humbleness of heart. We need God's heart. We, we need to constantly see Jesus as the one that needs exalted. We need to see Jesus as the one that needs to be glorified. We need to see the Spirit of God in these things. And we need to seek God in these things. It is time for us to, to stop making a rule about it. Not be legalistic about it. Not accuse other people of being legalistic about it. But let's seek God's heart in the matter of humility. Let God be glorified. As we go to our sewing machines, ladies, and sew, and as we go to the stores and buy our clothes, can we pray to God? Can we say something like this? God, You have made me humble. You have made me a new creature. You have made me separate from the world. You have given me a heart after You. You have made me a person who is harmless and holy and undefiled in my heart. And God, as I buy these clothes, as I sew these clothes, as I make the choices, because I'm making choices, God, can You line my outer manifestation? Can You line up what goes on the outside with what You have already done inside my heart? Can we dress prayerfully? Can we dress with a heart after God? Humbleness in the heart manifested in the life. Heart modesty. 